Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Religion, a channel in the New Books Network. I am Yakir Englander, your host today. The book Dangerous Religious Ideas, published in 2020, reveals how faith traditions have always passed down tools for self-examination and debate, because all religious ideas, not just extremist ones, can cause harm, even as they also embody important moral teachings. Scriptures' abiding relevance can inspire great goodness, such as welcoming the stranger and extending compassion for the poor. But its authority has also been wilded to defend slavery, marginalize LGBTQ individuals, ignore science, and justify violence. Grounded in close reading of scripture and tradition in Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, religious scholar Rachel Mikva shows us that the Abrahamic religions have always been aware of their tremendous power both to harm and to heal. And so they have transmitted their sacred stories along with built-in tools, interpretive traditions, to do the necessary work of taking on dangerous religious ideas and fostering self-critical faith. Rabbi Rachel Mikva is a rabbi and associate professor of Jewish studies and senior faculty fellow of the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary in Illinois. So Rachel, thank you so much for coming to the New Books Network. Thanks for inviting me. And my first question is, can you share with us a little bit about um, your spiritual or religious background? How did you grow up and what in maybe in your past led you to decide to to teach and to write this like your book? So I grew up uh, as a Reformed Jew and I still identify that way. So in a certain way, it's kind of boring. But my parents uh, joined the synagogue in Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, primarily so they could be part of the social justice committee. Um, That was their Jewish identity. And so they were sort of surprised and a little taken aback when I actually started taking the religious part kind of seriously. Um, And my grandfather on my father's side was a devout socialist atheist, and he's probably rolling over in his grave that he has a granddaughter who's a rabbi. Um, But I found that that Judaism provided a spiritual grounding for the values that my parents were trying to imbue in me in terms of social justice. So for me, they connected, not seamlessly, because of course every tradition has its problems. Um, uh, And they also raised me to be a critical thinker. and, um, And that's one of the things that I appreciate about my identity as a Reformed Jew, to be Uh, encouraged to engage the tradition critically. I think it comes from traditional roots uh, that that are embedded all throughout Jewish tradition. Um, uh, And so when I would be reading, I'm sorry, when I would be, when I would be teaching and speaking in religious communities, I kept bumping into two assumptions that bugged me. 
One was that in progressive spaces, people often imagined that they had reformed their traditions enough and so that their religious ideas were never dangerous. And then in more traditional spaces, people often imagined that asking critical questions will somehow weaken faith. And I wanted people to reexamine both of these assumptions, to see the deep roots of self-critical faith that are designed to deepen faith and commitment and also for people to recognize that this work is never done. You can't permanently excise the dangerous aspects. And the minute we assume that all the dangers of religion belong to someone else's faith, we become part of the problem. So I first started teaching a course that I called Dangerous Religious Ideas. Um, and of course, my students who always bring out the best in me in inspired me to think about it more deeply. And eventually it seemed substantive and well enough developed to be a book. Um, and in the book, I argue that all religious ideas are dangerous, not only those that we might consider extremist, but also those we might embrace and even those that stand at the heart of faith. And the other key argument of the book is that because most religious traditions have always understood this peril, they've transmitted tools of self-critique that are essential dimensions of faith. The, the seeds for this work are planted deep in the soil of religious thought. They're designed for us to cultivate. And if we want religion to be a force of blessing in the world, which it surely has been as well, then I think this is work we all have to do. Thank you. So one of the sentences you said, and in, 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 uh, also in the book and also now here, is about the, that each religion and each tradition has some dangerous elements. Um, I wonder if you can, I, I, I wonder if you can say why, by definition, um, each religion has some dangerous um, aspects. And also, I wonder um, why you choose, in, also in the title of the book, to focus on the ideas and um, maybe ideas as a, as a source for the action, or it was ideas next to action. Right. So remind me of that one if I forget at the end. Um, and let me start with an example and then talk about why I think that it's true for religion as a whole. Um, let's start with God, not key to every religion, but embedded in many. Um, and I'm not just talking about people who might murder others for having the wrong God in their opinion. We can instead look at the fact that more than 40% of Americans assert that you have to believe in God in order to be an ethical person, right? If we don't trust each other based on what we believe about the divine, I think that's dangerous. And to this day in the U.S., atheists face daily assaults on their beliefs. They find it difficult to get elected to public office in the U.S. Um, theists in opposing camps on reproductive rights and gun safety and tax policy and a host of, host of other divisive issues frequently presume that God's on their side and will heap, and I'm not, I'm not accepting myself from this or exempting myself from this, right? So we often find ourselves heaping moral condemnation on people who don't agree with us. And then in this way, I think God becomes an idol who's carved in our image. In the book, I describe this as a, God becomes a yes man, even though that's a gendered 
term, right? A yes man who endorses our policies, our politics, our prejudices. So um, I don't think that religion is unique in having dangerous religious ideas, right? I think that um, all kinds of ideas fall into this dialectical tension of danger and possibility. When embedded in religion, I think that there are several critical dynamics that emerge. One is ultimacy, right? The capacity to override other criteria for justice, goodness, the idea that we can deny evidence of countervailing ideas because somehow this one trumps them all, right? Um, uh, Mark Jürgensmeyer talks about cultures of violence, that which isn't the only way, of course, that religion can be dangerous, but um, but the idea that the violence is justified because of some ultimate religious value. So ultimacy is one particular religious dimension of this problem. Another is that um, religion is woven into every aspect of our psyche and society. It magnifies the power and presence of religion because it's in our, in our psychology, it's in our sociology, it's in our anthropology, it's in our DNA, right? So the will to pleasure or to power, to meaning, the building of human community, the custodian, a, a custodian of our cultural values, the way in which it's, um, uh, you know, part of our evolutionary development means that it's everywhere, right? And not uh, not every other dangerous kind of manifestation of something is as deeply embedded in so many aspects of, of human psyche and society. And then the third thing that I think is kind of unique about religion, at least in the context of the United States, is that in the public square, religious ideas are generally given a pass. And, um, and I don't think that should be the case. And part of the book tries to argue that we need to develop a constructive discourse for challenging uh, bad religious ideas, what we might consider bad religious ideas, dangerous religious ideas, not where we're in the pursuit of exclusive claims to salvation, but we were, where we are talking together about the common good. And if these religious ideas are undermining our perspectives on the common good, then we have a, a need to be to speak up and to challenge uh, the impact of these religious ideas on, on our collective public life. So that answered your first question. And now I'm trying right. to remember the second. I knew I would so forget the second it. Was, yes, the second was about the title. You're choosing the title, you call it uh, Dangerous Religious Ideas. And I wonder if you can say um, why you, what have made you to choose to focus on ideas, like is ideas as a basic of action? Um, is it um, ideas because, um, so I will tell you what I, I heard. So yeah, so I, I would, if um, you know, we both do a lot of interface dialogue and action. And right. one of the things that we, we, we hear all the time is, oh, my religion, the ideas of my religion are perfect and God is beautiful and salam and shalom. However, the translation to action is complicated. And what I hear in your title is, no, let's not run away that even the idea of Judaism, Islam, Christianity, we are challenged. Um, 
I want, yes. I, yes, that's what I hear too. And that is part of what I'm trying to say that it's not that, you know, that manifestation of religion is just wrong. And if you can just get rid of the, these dangerous actions, then, you know, then it's all beautiful. It's all salam. It's all, it's all love. Um, I do think that action matters when I spend this whole chapter nerding out where I unpack what I mean by dangerous and what I mean by religious and what I mean by ideas. And when I talk about ideas, I do talk about how they enter the stage of action, right? The uh, sacred text and textual interpretation and ritual and the ways we form community. Um, and I think those matter. And I also think there's sort of a chicken and the egg. I don't think like the ideas all came first and then we embodied them. I think this is a a mutually reinforming kind of cycle that we go through in the development of religion and religious life. Um, but I do think that, again, it's, it's inherent. It's embedded. You can't have an idea of God without, it's going to be dangerous. You can't have a sacred text that's going to be eternally relevant without that also being dangerous. So, I believe that's why the traditions transmitted the tools that they did for ongoing self-critique and why even traditions that we don't think of as perhaps as profoundly multivocal as we might think about Judaism, in fact, do transmit counter voices that have challenged and pointed to some of these dangers along the way. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, like um, I, I'm just thinking about like, right, even the stories of the Bible, whenever God appears and for the first time and holiness is happening, but also tragedy is, is happening. Um, so let's let, let's start with the, with the first part of the book, which focus on scriptures and um I love so much when 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 I read interfaith um, and different traditions um, and dialogue between them because you can see the common ground but you also see the uniqueness and right. I wonder if you can um, lead us inside your book with what did you find um, common to the three monotheistic uh, religions but also what's the uniqueness voice that you you found inside judaism and christianity and islam about the scriptures so um i think that the the promise and the danger are similar in all three which is that these texts are for us uh for ongoing practice of these faiths, they are, they have abiding relevance and they also have some authority in our lives, whether or not we think that the voice inside that text comes from God directly or through a human development of trying to respond to the call of the divine, they still have a claim on us. And that generates both the danger and the promise. So we can test new ideas. We can put, have a check on our less worthy desires. The texts can call us to account. They can challenge us to grow in goodness, but they also canonize othering, right? Transforming these historical tensions into a kind of eternal enmity, um, whether that be other religious traditions or LGBTQ identified individuals. Um, you know, we had people arguing, uh, around the Civil War, both pro-slavery and anti-slavery arguments using scripture to prove that God's on our side, right? So 
Um, uh, in it's interesting because when I originally titled the chapters that go under this unit, I just had Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and and then I thought, oh no, you know, there there is a lot in common, but I could highlight some of the different emphases. So, in terms of the tools that help mitigate the dangers of scripture, um, I find in all of three of the traditions. Uh, the evidence of multivocality, both an awareness about it in the scripture itself, as well as the interpretation, um, a sense of the, the provisional nature of truth and the human role in discerning what this is all about, what this means, um, a recognition that we can't know everything and that we're going to get it wrong sometimes, um, and the role of doubt in faith, uh, and and also a consciousness of historical change. There's, a, I think, a, an assumption in some communities today that whatever we think this scriptural idea means, it's always meant that. But in fact, in our historical traditions, there was an acute awareness that whatever we think this means, it hasn't always meant that. Um, so, But then when I start to work on each tradition individually, I gave a subtitle to each chapter based on what I thought of those tools, shared tools, there was a greater emphasis, right? So in the chapter on Judaism, I talk specifically about, right, the title talks about multivocality because I think rabbinic tradition took the multivocality that is evident in Hebrew Bible, which, you know, of course, preserves traditions as if they were compatible, even though they don't agree all the time. And it turned it into an exegetical ideology, right? This is a value, this multivocality. God speaks in this powerful way to be able to have, you know, multitudes of truths pour out from single letters and words. Um, uh, and, and of course, some awareness that, you know, how do you manage that kind of messaging, that kind of teaching. And so um, I cite, one of the many passages I cite is from the uh, early rabbinic text called Tosefta in a tractate Sota about, well, you know, why should you even bother to study this stuff if one rabbi is going to say X and the other rabbi is going to say negative X? I mean, what's the value then? And the response given by the Tosefta here, which I love, is they were all given by a single shepherd, right? Somehow this multivocality is divinely ordained. And what we're to do is to try to make ourselves a heart of many rooms, right? To be able to hold those competing ideas inside ourselves. And I love that idea. Um, when I got to the... Uh, chapter on Christianity, I really emphasized, I found that it emphasized, and therefore my subtitle emphasized the human role in all of this. So, um, you know, uh, including the limitations, Augustine talks about everything being known to God, or, or excuse me, I mean, Augustine talks about everything is known only as God makes it manifest to us, and that only God's knowledge is absolute. Um, it, much later, a Flemish uh, theologian philosopher, uh, De Gin, talks talks about it that says that religion is not after objective truth, but truth to live by. Right, the humans are trying to distill from this encounter with the divine truths to live by. Um, uh, 
one of the ways in which it does that is, well, one of the ways that Christianity accounts for the human in the history of interpretation of scripture is to recognize how much we don't know, right? So Nicholas of Cusa in the 15th century borrows this idea from Augustine um, from much earlier, talks about learned ignorance. I love this phrase, right? The idea that it is a sign of learnedness to know how much you don't know. I tell my PhD students, this is what getting a doctorate is about. It's about learning how much you don't know about something. Um, uh, and sometimes, like Abelard talks about the role of doubt um, will make us inquire. And by inquiring and investigating more deeply, we'll come closer to the truth. Um, but in fact, God is always taught uh, only to the in the ways that we might be able to discern and appreciate something. So uh, Aquinas, uh, of course, said it in Latin, scriptura humani loquitur, which is very similar to a rabbinic teaching, uh, right? Torah speaks in human language. And, um, and so it's a textbook uh, that is, this is the way William of Averne talks about it. It's a text, a divine textbook for different levels, right? And so we can mine the different veins of precious metals, or we can um, think about it. He also uses the metaphor of a medicine chest that we each take the kind, you know, that part of it, which can help cure the, our ails, the things we need from, uh, from scripture. Um, and in, I mean, it's not always harmless, this tool, right? The idea that, uh, that God is accommodating where we are was part of the justification that Christianity used to say, well, Judaism is now passe because God was, that's, that covenant was for where the people were then, but it was to prepare them for the reception to be ready for the coming of Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, we don't need that one anymore. Um, so the tools themselves can also be part of this cycle of, or, or this dialectic of danger and possibility. But there was a lot of um, room for growth in this recognition of the role of the human. And when I look more deeply into some of the teachings uh, through Islam, um, I was struck uh, most powerfully by the work of Intisar Rab on the role of doubt in faith. Again, this is something that you find in the other traditions. Um, but uh, Islam really canonized the doctrine of doubt. There's an awareness that not all of it is clear, right? There's a verse, an ayah that says, most of the Quran is very clear, but some of it's open to interpretation. And uh, so in the science of interpretation that develops in the early Middle Ages, uh, they talk about, well, you know, is this one to be... Uh, understood generally or narrowly, and other kinds of questions about interpretation that the Quran itself made room for. So um, I do think that as much as the traditions share, there are these very unique contributions to the toolkit of self-critical faith that each uh, offers. Thank you. So two things that I, 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 I would love to 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 think with you is one many times people who who think about religion they think about that religion give you a clear path to life 
right? Because God said so. So it's like you can submit yourself in a way. You can submit the, and for sure in our contemporary time that where we do not know so many things and the things that we thought that we know, we break them, right? About um, race, about gender, about family. Um, so, and there is something people go back to religion in order to rely on something which is very clear. And what you offer them is to understand that to the opposite, that religion by definition tell you, please do not use me for your fear from life, because in a way what I'm going to offer you are ways how to rely or to relate with life, but it's not going to be clear answer. And what you emphasize now in your last in your last answer was it's not about that. It's about the in a way as more that you deal with religion and you learn deeper, you understand that the unknown is be is like deeper. Um, can you try to lead us with this hesitation? Well, that was beautiful. So I could just leave it with your comment, but I agree that I think. Part of the message of the book, and certainly something I believe, is that religion, at its best, provides tools to deal with the complexity of life, not to escape them. Right? That would be my clearest and simplest statement of it. And it's tragic that so many of us are left with a kind of a pediatric introduction to our religion, right? We get the stories from our scriptures, we get the holiday traditions, and then we grow up and we stop learning. Just when we have the, you know, enough capacity to recognize um, some of the deeper uh, teachings and challenges of our tradition. So I'm trying to remember who taught it, and I'm not um, remembering offhand, but there's this idea, um, you know, that that we work on the rough spots, right? This irritating grain of sand, like like oysters, right? And by working on the rough spots, that's how we actually w- create the pearls of, scri- of scriptural or religious instruction, right? It's not a, as my rabbi used to say, it's not a Boy Scout manual, right? It doesn't just hand us easy truths. It gives us these tools to grapple. And, and to me, that's such a, a more profound gift and a more important gift because ultimately, and I tell my students this, who are transformed by what they learn in seminary, but then afraid to take it into their congregations, right? My congregants aren't going to have three years. I teach in a historically Protestant seminary. So unlike our rabbinic education, it's not five or six years, it's three. Um, But they said they're not going to have three years to sort of deconstruct and reconstruct their theologies. I'm afraid to take these things to them. And I said, they already need them. They don't, mm. sometimes they'll ask you explicitly, but they've already recognized that pediatric faith isn't enough to sustain them in this complex, troubled world. They need more. And, um, and you know, you don't have to dump it on them all at once, but you can over time guide them toward mature faith. And it's absolutely essential because they're desperate for it. Mm. Wow, it's it's so interesting. So, Rachel, I want to to ask you a question that was walking with me as I was reading um, the first part of the book. 
And what do we do with the voices in our traditions that tell you maybe it was true in the past, but it's not anymore? Um, you know, life change today, we need to be much more clear and strict. I think about one of the, again, from our Jewish tradition, I think about like um, one of the main rabbis in 19th century in Europe, the Khatam Sofer, who says, you know, the big statement, um, anything which is new is forbidden by the Torah. And then you have uh, today, you know, a whole stream of Judaism, the ultra-Orthodox, who in a way, in a very complex way, of course, but they follow. It's like, this is the ideal. This is one of the, maybe the 11th, um, you know, a command of the Ten Commandments, uh, which is, do not walk there. Do not try to change. Um, how should we deal with that? Um, well, I... I do think that, um, you know, there are people, I'm not going to be able to persuade everybody, but in terms of how we look at those phenomena, uh, I think it's important to recognize the historical context in which they emerged, right? So there are always continually reformed traditions in these, tra in these religions, and many of them over time trying to go back and recover some purer sense of the faith, not... Con confused or or distorted by later traditions, um, and at the same time, um, a lot we can look at the history and say there are particular reasons that this expression developed then. So, um, if we look at Karaite Judaism, which was one of those, right? Let's just discard rabbinic tradition because it really distorted the biblical teaching. This was a critique that was coming from the very influential Islamic culture of the time and place in which Karaite Judaism emerges. So I don't have to become a Muslim to be a, a better Jew. I can myself as a Karaite Jew try to purify my tradition and distill that original message that came from God on Sinai, right? So um, similarly, if we look at Christian tradition and the idea that... Um, that the Vatican claimed infallibility for the Pope. That was an exceptional claim. It happened really twice in history, three times, but really two of them are interrelated. One is the Council of Trent, which is a response to the Reformation and this huge threat that Christianity is no longer under the domain of the Catholic Church. There is a competing, not just the Eastern Orthodox Church, but in Western Europe, there is a competing Christian voice. Um, and so this is a profound threat. And so it drives this claim of infallibility. Um, similarly, we got it in Vatican I and Vatican II as a response to secularism and the dismantling of Christendom. Again, a, a huge threat to the way the church had expected or historically operated in the world. So there are these historical circumstances that shape the movements of of ultra-Orthodoxy or of pure puritanical reform. Um, and, you know, and nonetheless, especially for like Jewish tradition, which does not discard the everything in between, right? So the ultra-Orthodox, even the, you know, rabid ultra-nationalist Orthodox in Israel 
that I talk about a little bit in the book uh, as a dangerous expression of chosenness, um, they're not discarding all of the rabbinic tradition. So what are they going to do with, you know, um, with Rashbam, who says, my grandfather would have loved to just write a whole new commentary and, and look for a chidush every day, <laughs> right? So how does that mesh with their um, terror of the chidush, of the innovation? Similarly, you know, Islam has a very similar dialectical relationship to change, right? In some ways, it's considered dangerous and heretical, but a lot of that, you know, that it gets expressed now as sort of a a, po- a post-colonial response to the ongoing impact of Western colonialism. So how do you recover the reform traditions inside your own tradition without, you know, without feeling like you're doing it under the gaze of the Western eye? So I don't have an answer, but I do think it's a really important question um, that we can grapple with together. Yes. So we, before we will go to the second part um, of the book, I, w- I, I, I want to ask um, another question that was walking with me as I was learning your book. And I think that um, I would just say to the readers that I, I think one of the gifts of this book is on the, that on the same time, you give us like deepness. Like I really was walking with you in the, in the different text and learning. and But on the same time, it's so clear. And I felt that I... In a way, I'm a student of you and we are walking or you walk with us, you know, and the text. So thank you so much. Um, so, so Rachel, I, I just wonder as we, if we can just stay for a, one more minute in uh, with the scriptures. Um, one of the dangerous ideas um, is that I hear or, or the fear of, of different religion traditions, they say that there is always a tension between walking too fast and too, walking too slow. Um, and it's always a dance, right? It's a very, very gentle and sensitive dance between mostly the young generation who want to push even more to the needs, to the needs they wish religion will give them, right, to their life. And people who are a little bit older who said like, but I'm afraid that by running so fast, you will forget what happened in the past. So I wonder if um, where, when it become dangerous to go to one side of the other and when in, and where in a way it's healthy to have this tension. It's like that you can say to your students who are maybe young pastors, young rabbis, you know what? The fact that the Jewish community is not totally with you is not so bad because changes need time. Um, I do think that, you know, you and I both grow out of this dialectical tradition. So we're really comfortable (laughs) with the ongoing conflict um, and ambiguity and the way that truth might emerge out of that ongoing tension. So I do think that scripture's rootedness and it's the fact that if you just look over the history of its interpretation, it's been so dynamic and so multivocal, right? I do think that those help us sustain a healthy tension in the questions around uh, continuity and change, 
right? And I think this is one of the deep values of scriptural traditions. I mean, there are other ways that non-scriptural traditions try to navigate that same tension. Um, in indigenous traditions, a, lo- a lot of that is held in the wisdom of the elders, right? But, but for me, as a Jew with a scriptural tradition, scripture is actually a key to that. Um, uh, and I do think it's important. Uh, usually, you know, I think the pace of change is too slow, but I'd rather be on the side, you know, pushing it that way um, uh, to make space, you know, I mean, the uh, let me back up and talk about one of my favorite teachings of rabbinic tradition, which I mentioned briefly in the book, is lifnim mishorat hadin, the idea that if the process by which the rabbis make their decisions, their deliberations, and the slow evolutionary nature of the tradition uh, comes to a decision, the, the process properly undertaken comes to a decision that just doesn't feel right to them. You know, they'll make a different rule, right? That this, that's where this, the halachic process would lead us, but we really think that this is true, right? And I think that's ultimately, say, the argument that uh, Jewish abolitionists were making in the Civil War, right? Yes, script. Slavery is a known entity, not chattel slavery, but slavery is a known entity in the Bible. But if you look at God creating all of humanity in the divine image, if you look at God's commitment to liberation as told through Exodus, then obviously, you know, isn't the right answer to abolish slavery. And I I think that that value um, is a key to the way that we continue to make room for change and, and that the other traditions have different versions of those two. Hmm. Yes. Um, in in one of them, in, in one article, I think I I, I, I said something that I, I wonder how you will relate to that. I said that maybe, again, you know, we don't know, but maybe in a way when there is something very radical to the negative way, you know, in our beloved traditions, like we need to kill a nation that's called Amalek, we need to have slaves and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe the, the divine understood that part of us wish to kill. We wish to control. And in a way, the divine tells you, I am aware of that. Now let's deal with that. Um, I don't want to run away from these feelings that as humans we carry. Right. I do think that... Um that there is a profound insight into the nature of human condition, different insights in the different traditions. Um, uh, and, and yes, that, you know, if I think Arnie Eisen once said, you know, if the Hebrew Bible had, um, you know, an idea of a perf of, of Eden, but not but not fratricide, right? If it had an idea of all shalom, all peace, but not, you know, wiping out Amalek, it would be a really pretty book, but it wouldn't speak to the fullness of the human tradition, right? That are that in order to be powerful, the religions have to meet us where we are and and engage our whole our whole selves. And that does include a capacity for violence. You know, I don't think that. You know, religion didn't invent violence or even invent justified violence. Um, it, it is a spirituality for violence, and therefore I think it, it has a uniquely dangerous power. 
Um, but uh, I say this also in the book about reward and punishment, right? We didn't, <laughs> I think that, that, you know, Hollywood is much more responsible for feeding our drive for, you know, just revenge than Bible is or Quran is, but it's part of who we are. Um, and we need a text that knows that about us. We need a tradition that knows that about us. So, yes. 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 Thank you. So let's move to the second part. And I wonder, why did you choose, if you can share with us, why did you choose the question of choicelessness um, to, to focus on, um, which I think is, uh, is so brilliant because we really need it. Um, and then what, what did you try to, to do with this question before we will go to the different traditions? So... One of the things that fascinated me about this question is we don't even have shared language for it, but we all have this idea embedded in our tradition. So Judaism talks about it as chosenness. Christianity talks about it as election. Islam talks about it primarily in the language of being rightly guided. Um, nonetheless, there is this profoundly intersecting matrix, right? It brought me to talk not only about chosenness, election, and being rightly guided, but supersession and salvation, right? These are all kind of, it took me a really long time to write this section because I kept trying to tease out and pull it apart so I could focus more narrowly, but I couldn't. They really are too interwoven. So I figured out finally that, that what really holds this matrix of dangerous religious ideas together are the dangers of conquest and othering. Um, and I think that there is a lot of positive potential in these concepts as well. So what I do after unpacking some of the dangers and some of the critical tools and the ways the traditions have tried to contain some of the dangers is also focus when I get to the individual traditions on what is it that is a sustaining um, an important contribution, positive contribution to religious life? Why is this import, continue to be important in these traditions, even if, you know, even for, I won't speak for you, but a Jew like myself that doesn't really think the Jews are chosen, right? Not, I mean, not in any way that other peoples aren't equally chosen, right? God is in relationship. Amos taught this a long time ago, the prophet Amos. Right, God's in relationship to all the nations. And we may feel very special for the relationship we have through the covenant of Torah, but God has special relationships with others too. Um, so even for a Jew like myself, I'm not where Mordechai Kaplan was that said, just throw out the whole thing, <laughs> right? Be because it's dangerous. And, and he was right about the dangers, but I'm, I'm not quite ready to discard the idea because I also know how powerful it's been in positive ways as well. So thank you. So now what did you find unique in each of the traditions? So probably the easiest way to answer that is to walk through a little bit some of what I talk about. So I start with the scriptures. Now that I've had a whole unit on scripture, I start with the scriptural foundations uh, in each of these traditions. And one of the things I love about Hebrew Bible is this question comes up so early, right? 
we, we deal with the problem of God choosing right after we deal with the problem of humans choosing, yeah. right? We're barely out of Eden and we've got Cain and Abel and God accepts Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. And Cain is, you know, it leads to the first murder, to the fr- fr- fratricide, to the killing of his brother. So, and the echoes of rivalry for divine favor continue to play out through the narratives of Genesis in less violent ways for the most part. Um, uh, but, but what I love is that Hebrew Bible is itself trying to figure out what's this about? And there's not one answer, right? There are multiple answers. Is it, um, is it simply a, a mark of favor, right? A totally unearned mark of favor as it was perhaps for Abraham, right? God just loves Abraham. Or is it a covenant of Torah, of of committing to observance of Torah, which seems to be very central and one of the more repeated ideas of what chosenness is about, Um, you know, and also exploring what it isn't about, right? Amos saying it's not because you're better than anybody else. um, And it has a special responsibility, not a special privilege. Um, uh, You know, Jonah being sent to Nineveh to, to of all things help rescue, you know, the, the Assyrians, who are the enemy, you know, the the imperial enemy, the very powerful enemy of Israel, um, as if he could rescue them from their own uh, destruction, from God destroying them because of their misbehaviors. Um, uh, you know, and it changes over time. It's contextual. So after the destruction of the temple, it becomes more important to reassure the people of God's abiding love. Um, and that God hasn't abandoned you. And, uh, and I think that's an important message too. So is the idea that you might suffer on a part, uh, on account of um, the idea that you are committed to God in this particular way. So Isaiah's uh, uh, imagery of the suffering servant, or even in Esther where the people are uh, under threat because they are, different. They observe this different kind of covenant. Um, so, so in Judaism, there's a lot of exploration about what it means, right? What is this about? Um, but ultimately it is, it does have to address these two dangers I outlined at the beginning, right? The idea of conquest and the idea of othering. And the rabbis were really good about circumscribing conquest, um, uh, you know, after the destruction of the Second Temple and the decimation of the diaspora communities, the brutal crushing of the Bar Kokhba revolt, the futility of fighting the Roman Empire by force became pretty clear. Um, and so they began to imagine a path to restoration that was different. It was through renewed covenant to God um, and not, you know, uh, I want to quote Zechariah here that was earlier, but not by might and not by power, right? But um, but by some other way. So the warrior becomes this heroic master of Torah, um, trained in intellectual combat and spiritual vir- virtuosity, and um, and so we did pretty well because we didn't hold political power. Right. <laughs> like, you know, conquest was like, yeah. oh, okay, that w- that one's done. Got that one taken care yeah. of. But we always had ongoing issues around othering, both because we were othered and because we um, 
had uh, embedded in our texts and our traditions and our community uh, ethos, the sort of ideas about non-Jews. Um, and there were wonderfully important counterpoints, you know, people who, um, who talked about, uh, you know, anyone who, who with us with an ethical religion is part of greater spiritual Israel. So the us and them is not what you think, right? And some of those ideas go all the way back to Philo, um, but also even in the Middle Ages when Jews were so severely othered, there were, you know, like the Meiri talks in his Talmud commentary about, um, you know, the, the idea that there would be different laws, different laws for Jews and non-Jews is ridiculous. And in fact, the, the, the non-Jews of today are not, um, you know, not some religious others, but in fact, people also with an ethical religion. And so we have to see them as part of this greater spiritual Israel. So I, um, you know, Christianity had a different arc, right? It's, um, it's also working out what chosenness means in the text. And it, some of it's grounded very much in Jewish ideas around, you know, observance of the covenant and, uh, and God's love. Uh, but some of the ideas are new. And one of the things it's struggling with is who is Israel, right? Are we Israel now? Are we Israel too? Or are we Israel instead? Um, and then it gets bound up because of ideas about afterlife and other things with ideas about salvation. And so we get supersession and salvation already questions being explored inside the, the text of the New Testament. And, um, and until it is the religion of the empire, um, it doesn't have to deal with questions around conquest. It does have some glorification of, of at least metaphors of violence in New Testament, but it's not really dealing with actual military conquest until it becomes the religion of the empire. And then it's awfully hard to avoid. Um, so it, it had sort of the different mode, right? It, it, it's issues were with othering first and with conquest later. Um, but also is dealing with the same problems. Um, and, and, uh, Islam very early in its life, um, not again, not in its uh, not in its very beginnings when it is an oppressed minority among um, <clears throat> uh, among the Quraysh that um, uh, but very quickly starts to hold some political power and has to deal with questions around conquest and also questions around othering. Interestingly, because it takes shape inside a world that already knows of Judaism and Christianity, it becomes very self-aware in the way it thinks and talks about religious others. And it, the text itself in Quran and certainly in later tradition kind of has both voices, both respectful voices trying to preserve and respect the earlier traditions, but also supersessionary voices um, uh, and some beautiful pluralistic sounding texts about divinely intended multiplicity and then some really ugly texts about, um, you know, where uh, Jews are compared uh, or turned into either metaphorically or, or, or literally, depending on how you read the text, into apes and pigs. Um, so it also canonizes othering. So uh, we've, uh, you know, uh, in Hebrew Bible, where we canonize the othering of Amalek and the Canaanites, luckily they're not around anymore. 
Um, but in New Testament, we're we're canonizing the othering of Jews, and in in Quran, there is the canonization of the othering of Jews, Christians, and pagans. Um, nonetheless, all three are very self-aware of some of the dangers, and they're again built into both text and tradition some counterpoints, some countervoices. So that's a long and rambling answer to where I think that the to lead to this shorter response, which is what I think is most different about the traditions in the way that they deal with the chosenness, is why it's of value, the value that it has served for them over time. So for Judaism, I talk about it creating a place for particularity, for reassuring the people of God's abiding love, and for committing to a life of Torah. And in Christianity, I talk about it as um, as being important to believing, affirming God's ongoing initiative of love toward the world and of emulating Christ, a way of emulating Jesus. And in Islam, I talk about its importance in helping to fashion the ummah, the people, um, and in... Um, uh, undergirding really this idea of a primordial religion. One of the more potentially pluralistic ideas inside Islam is we're all born with the capacity to know right and wrong and recognize God. And, um, and therefore we all have this capacity for uh, religious truth. We can all be rightly guided by God. Um, and, uh, that's different than affirming that all of the existing traditions equally demonstrate that you are being rightly guided by God, but we all have that human potential. And that's embedded in the way it thinks about being rightly guided, as is Sharia, which is often weaponized to hear in political discourse as to be something you should be scared of, right? Um, because somehow Sharia is overtaking the country and it's not. Um, even though over 20 states have introduced anti-Sharia legislation. In fact, the idea of Sharia, that we, you know, that there is a teaching that we haven't captured in fiqh, in the way that we, you know, humanly translate it, but that there is, the capa- there is this idea that we could create a world together that, um, that is rightly guided, that God is trying to get us to the right place. Um, yeah. So anyway, that was a really long and rambling answer, but it, beautiful. it, it shows <laughs> a, how weird this whole structure of the second unit was because there's so many overlapping and intersecting ideas. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also thinking about how much the second part, the question about choiceness is also an example to see how dangerous ideas, right, are exist and what do we do with them? Um, because as you mentioned, I mean, the choiceness is, is a, it, like this challenge is God in Genesis at the beginning. God, like why God needed to choose Cain over, um, Abel over Cain. I mean, God could choose like, oh, I love you both. And right. this is incredible <laughs> that you want to have a party with me in different ways. Right. And like <laughs> God, just, it's, it's like God in Genesis 18, uh, 22, sorry, come to Abraham and says, Take your son, your only son, your beloved one. It's like all about choices. You need to choose who is a favorite. And then he said, 
God says, it's like it's Isaac, bring it to me. And if we are Muslim, we will hear Ishmael. And something there, I think that what I love so much, that part of the challenge is part of what you try to teach us in the whole book, that the dangerous ideas are there. The question is how we choose to work with them. Yes, yes. You know, and as you suggest, each at the end of each unit, I keep coming back to our world today, right? I, I am a history of exegesis scholar, and I think that what the way we've interpreted our texts and traditions matter, but ultimately, I care about what's happening in the world today, and these ideas are still shaping our world and in ways that are both wondrous and profoundly dangerous. So, um, so each unit sort of has a chapter at the end with, like, how is this playing out today? And yeah, and yeah I think it it's really important to think those things through. Yeah. So I will come to my last question, Rachel, since time is, is, is running and it's so interesting. And it's a question that I didn't see in the book, but since you are working with so many traditions in the book, but also in your teachings, um, I want to ask it. And, and I'm not even sure I have the right language. My question is, what is dangerous about the idea of monotheism? Um, so there are certainly theologians that have suggested, and religious scholars, who have suggested that monotheism has a particular danger because it argues for a kind of a universal tradition or universal control. Um, I'm not sure I'm persuaded by these arguments. I do think that monotheism is dangerous. I do think it's interesting, you know, um, one of the things I talk about in the unit on chosenness when I'm talking about Judaism is at the beginning, you know, Hebrew Bible has a tradition where, um, where everybody in the ancient Near East has a special relationship with their God, right? The Philistines have Dagon and the Moabites have Chemosh. And the begin early parts of Hebrew Bible are formed by this model, right? And so Yahweh is our God. And then as monotheism starts to take hold, or at least monolatry, right? It, so monolatry is sort of where we begin, um, we're just supposed to worship Yahweh, but then we get to monotheism with this idea that this is God of the whole world. Then the Hebrew Bible is obviously struggling with, with what that means, right? So there's clear development of ideas around what are the implications of monotheism. And I think there are particular ones, but I don't know that they're uniquely dangerous. I think that Judaism is an interesting example of a monotheistic tradition that does not presume to universalism, right? It's not that everybody has to be a Jew. Um, there is something perhaps um, patronizing about the idea that if I'm, you know, if I'm really persuaded that this God I call Adonai um, is a uh, God of the whole world, and uh, you know, and my my Hindu colleague has, you know, a notion. My Vaishnava Hindu colleague has a, a different kind of notion, which is related to monotheism more than some other Hindu traditions, but still recognizes the divinity of other figures. Um, you know, for me to say, 
okay, somehow all of that is still related to this divine figure I call Adonai. That is perhaps both bonding and insulting. So I recognize that. Um, but since I'm not so theologically driven, I care much more about what people do. Um, I'm not persuaded that it's uniquely dangerous. You know, we obviously, we know plenty of non-monotheistic traditions that have gone to war around religious ideas and around religious convictions and more, more specifically around using the power of religion for political gain, right? And I neither hold religion completely responsible nor let it off the hook, right? Religion is bound up with that, all of that. But I'm not persuaded that monotheism is uniquely so. Um, <clears throat> I do... I do think, you know, I talk a lot at, at the end about the role of religion in the public square. Yeah. Um, because I think this is something we need to work on. Yeah. You know, I was raised in the tradition of John Rawls, believing that we should utilize public reason rather than religious beliefs in arguing a policy position. Um, but if we, you know, and progressives... Um, sort of embraced that for a long time, but I think sort of seeded the public religious voice, not for lack of religious conviction, but because of this liberal commitment to public reasons. So it gave the erroneous impression that political liberalism was hostile to religion, that religious voices were being pushed out of public debate, that religious meant conservative. And I think that we're beginning to reclaim that but we need a new model. And so this is where it begins to relate, I think, to your question about monotheism. I think ultimately we, um, uh, because the controversy is how we talk about and enshrine and embody religious values in our collective public life, I advocate a conversation model. That's not exactly a strict separation, but rather one where we have to be able to stand inside and outside our tradition, right? This is how my tradition informs what I do, but I have to also stand and what I think and what I think maybe even other people should do, but I also have to stand outside that tradition and say, how does my, how do my convictions affect you? And including people who believe differently, including people who aren't monotheistic. And I think that monotheistic people have as much, ability to do that and as much challenge to do that as other people who, who whose spiritual life stances are different. Um, so I think I'll stop there. I love that. I love that. Rachel, so thank you so much for joining us in the New Books Network. Thank you so much. It was a great treat to get to talk with you. And I'm so glad you read and enjoyed the book. And uh, I hope others will as well.